Welcome to Forcing Function Hour, a conversation series exploring the boundaries of peak performance. Join me, Chris Sparks, as I interview elite performers to reveal principles, systems, and strategies for achieving a competitive edge in business. If you are an executive or investor ready to take yourself to the next level, download my workbook at experimentwithoutlimits.com. For all episodes and show notes, go to forcingfunctionhour.com. Uh, our guest Taylor. Many of you guys are well familiar with his work, but those who aren't, uh, Taylor is a author, an investor, and I think this term is overused, but very apt in his case. He's, he's definitely a futurist. Um, Taylor is the author of the book End of Jobs, which talks about our entrepreneurial future, and he's working on a new book about the cascading effects of Bitcoin and blockchain. Um, Taylor is the principal of Mutiny Fund, which is a tail risk hedge fund, talking about how you can benefit from volatility. And he also invests directly in internet software businesses. Um, so many of you guys know Taylor from his excellent writing online at taylorpearson.me. And Taylor shares mental models for thinking better about productivity, marketing, and investing. Um, he was incredibly valuable in the early creation of Experiment Without Limits curriculum. And I like to think about his superpower is Taylor thinks very deeply. So many people see things that are happening, but Taylor goes the extra mile as far as what are the implications of what is happening. Uh, we've both done a little bit of improv and one of my favorite concepts from improv is if this is true, what else is true? I think Taylor is one of the best at, at taking this next step about implications. Um, you know, some of you guys might be curious how Taylor and I met. Uh, I believe it was through the Dynamite Circle. Uh, we met up in, in New York City. Uh, Dynamite Circle is one of these subcultures that we'll talk about that gives you a, a unique lens into entrepreneurship and where business is heading. Uh, and Taylor did an annual retreat. Um, it, was, uh, it was on a lake in Alabama. And if I trace back some of the most interesting people that I know, um, you know, all roads lead through Taylor. So I owe him a debt of gratitude for, for bringing those people together. Um, what to expect for today? Today, our goal is to show you how to both recognize present trends and then extrapolate them into the future. And what is the goal of that? The goal is for you to become more anti-fragile. What does that mean? That uncertainty goes from a threat to an opportunity. The world is dynamic, things are constantly in flux, but this does not need to be something that you're afraid of. In fact, if you're able to position yourself correctly, all changes become opportunities. With all that being said, I wanted to hand things off to Taylor and kick off today's conversation. Um, Taylor, so many ways we could get started, but I think talking about your book, End of Jobs, is a great place to get started. Um, you know, End of Jobs is really about the future of work, um, how typical organization man, corporate work is going to be gradually replaced by freelancing and entrepreneurship. And I would love to know, you know, what were the experiences that allowed you to get that insight? Uh, yeah, I mean, first, thanks for having me. You know, after that introduction, I expect everything I say will be pretty disappointing. So it's all downhill from here, but that's good. Uh, get the expectations down. Um, yeah, you know, um, I guess sort of to start, there, you know, we, we were sort of talking before about themes and, and how things come to that. I think, you know, one of the, the ideas I found like very interesting um, and impactful on me 
has been this idea of kind of um, optimizing for interesting. Um, you know, thinking about, and uh, this is, there's a paper, I believe the guy's a MIT professor or some sort of AI research person named Jürgen Schmidhuber, and he has this paper called Driven by Compression Progress, and it's a very speculative paper, but basically speculates that the emotion interesting is um, an emotion that evolved uh, to indicate where humans have, where you have compression progress, right? And you, where you can compress information in an efficient way, right? So, you know, E equals MC squared, is a compression of information in an efficient way, right? You can explain a vast amount of physical phenomena with other Einstein's, you know, relativity um, kind of thing. And that, you know, that's sort of an extreme example. Um, but I think that that general idea has always been interesting to me. And so, you know, coming back to sort of the end of jobs and how that happened, um, you know, I, uh, I was working, my first job after college, um, I was a translator. Uh, I was a medical interpreter for about a year for college, and I taught English um, in Brazil. And while I was uh, teaching English in Brazil, I started listening to these, like, at the time, very weird niche things called podcasts. And um, there were all these people doing podcasts that were talking about how you could, like, sell stuff to people on the Internet. And, like, that was a thing now um, that, like, people, you know, and, I, like, obviously this was um, Amazon was running, like, but, like, you know, e-commerce was still a very small thing. Um, and like the idea that like a career path was like, you know, sort of sell people things on the internet or, or, or like, you know, leverage the internet in some way, um, was at least something like, you know, something I was like exposed to, you know, um, what was, I didn't, I didn't have any friends in high school or college that like worked in tech or finance, um, or anything like that. Um, you know, I had friends that were lawyers and doctors and worked at banks and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and I just thought that was like such an interesting idea. And I started like listening to all these podcasts and um, I bought some books on like how uh, search engine optimization worked at the time. Um, you know, that was like a big, people were talking, I, was, I guess it still is a big thing, but, um, and uh, started like building websites and you know, taught myself WordPress and um, was sort of like mucking around with that stuff. And that ended up turning into a job. I worked for an e-commerce company based out of California uh, for a couple of years. And as you mentioned, um, the dynamite trickle that we met through, they also started that was their other business. Um, and it was basically, uh, yeah, a forum, a subculture, they had an event, uh, they still do, uh, obviously not in COVID times about, you know, how people selling stuff on the internet, sort of, uh, internet based businesses would come together and you know, talk about what they were doing and, and whatever tips and tricks and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I had the idea for the book. I was actually at their annual conference and uh, I was having breakfast. I can't remember with a few, a few different people there. And it just like occurred to me, it just seemed very obvious to me that like all these things we were talking about, like this is how the world, like no one else kind of got, you know, not, not no one else, but relatively few people sort of understood that like this was how things work now. And uh, it just seemed like very apparent to me that like there was this huge secular trend. It was driven by this like technological change that wasn't going to reverse itself. Um, and then if you, you know, um, you kind of solve for the equilibrium point, right? Like we have this new change and like, we haven't seen the effect of the change, but like at some point there is an equilibrium and like, what does that equilibrium look like? Um, so kind of the idea behind the end of jobs was like, what is that equilibrium point, um, out into the future, right? If you, if you take this sort of trend, like what the internet allowed people to do with their careers and how it changed careers and you just follow to the logical conclusion. You know, you're not anticipating anything new. You're just sort of taking what you already see and um, and just you know, yeah, drawing it out as far as it will sort of logically go. Um, 
you know, that was kind of the, the impetus for that book. What do you think you were seeing that, that others were missing because you were a part of these subcultures and kind of exploring things on the internet independently? I mean, I think the big, the thing that sort of like made the idea, um, click in my head was this idea of um, you either call it like the long tail or like transaction costs. So like there's a good long tail is probably the easiest way to talk about. There's a, this is a, a concept, um, I think Chris Anderson, who's an editor at Wired Magazine. And um, he wrote this book, it's like mid 2000s maybe. Uh, but the idea was basically uh, on the internet, um, you know, if you sell to take like music as an example, if you had, a, you know, you went into Tower Records when like CD stores were still a thing, uh, like Tower Records, maybe they had 20,000 CDs. I don't, I don't know what they're 20,000, 30,000 CDs. Um, but, you know, there were 10 million CDs that could possibly be bought. But, like, the, the nature of if you're selling, you know, you have a physical retail space is um, you know, there's a marginal cost to stocking additional product, right? Like, you have to make the store physically bigger. You have to pay for that real estate. You have to pay for to maintain it. Um, and so there's, there's a transaction cost. Uh, involved with that and then you know, there's also like search costs like, like you, you would go and like took a while to find the cd you wanted right like you'd have to go and like is it in the rock section or is it in the pop section or like however it was categorized um and sort of what he observed was um once you had the internet um there was you know effectively zero marginal cost to like stacking additional product right you know amazon has I don't know, a hundred million books available right now or something like that. I mean, that doesn't work. You can't have Barnes and Nobles can't have a hundred million books. Um, and then, you know, I think the other interesting thing was, you know, uh, one stat of interesting is like the number of Amazon third party sellers, right? So this isn't, you know, part of the Amazon's business looks kind of like Walmart's business, right? So they go out to Tide and they cut a deal with Tide and they sell Tide on the website and people get their Tide and it's like, okay, that's fine. Um, but then you also end up with all these sort of like third, these just like sort of weird niche, you know, laundry detergent for people that have um, gluten insensitivity and, uh, you know, live in low light climates and you can, you know, do something with a laundry detergent that's different or whatever. And um, like those sorts of businesses work on the internet, these sort of very niche things because you have this relatively low transaction cost. You've um, sort of removed this uh, tyranny of geography, if you will, all of a sudden you can, um, if you have, um, you know, enough market of global, you don't have to have enough of a market locally. You just need to have enough of a market, um, globally for sort of whatever it is, um, you're doing. And so I think that like, that was sort of the, the main idea. And then it was just like, oh, well, and then, you know, and I think like music was probably one of the first places we saw that happen books, um, like media to some extent. Um, and it was just kind of like, okay, well, let's just assume you know, the underlying thing there is the same, right? Like it's not any different. Like I think like, like one recent iteration of that is this like newsletter, a paid newsletter trend, right? It's like if you write a paid newsletter on, you know, corporate earnings where you analyze companies, S1s or, you know, public filings or whatever, like it doesn't really work as a newspaper, right? There's like not enough people in, you know, even like New York City, you know, certainly not like Duluth, Minnesota or whatever that are going to, I don't actually know where Duluth is. It might not be in Minnesota, but you know, it doesn't work geographically, but it, it totally works on the internet, right? Like there's, um, you know, a thousand or 2000 people that would pay a hundred or $200 a year because they're really interested in, you know, that sort of, um, that sort of material. And so, you know, in terms of like sort of how people approach their careers, like the big thing was like just this ability to sort of work independently of a large 
um, corporation, right? You, you could take that, you know, if you were really good at writing as one of public companies or had some alternative tied competitor for people with celiac or whatever, um, all of a sudden like that was like a viable business and like that was the viable um, career path that just like wasn't sort of broadly uh, appreciated. Yeah, I want to pull on that thread a little bit where just the recognition of one secular trend, like the long tail, the ability to reach these increasingly narrow niches and not only to build businesses and subcultures around them, but to almost create a beachhead for which to expand, right? Amazon starting off with books and then expanding to being the everything store. Um, Would you see these niches starting to build, um, let's say something like a blockchain, where in the beginning, it's just a small subset of people who are able to congregate together on the internet, share information, collaborate on open source projects. What do you see as that next step for an early subculture like that to start to get momentum? The momentum in like sort of it being broader, more people knowing about it or right, um, moving moving from the curve, right? You have the super early adopters to the the late early adopters, right? How does it start to move up that curve? Right. Yeah, I mean I think I, I guess now that we're all amateur epidemiologists, you know, we can do the the infectious disease correlate, right? It's you know, everyone knows the what the R not, right? There's the you know, if one person gets COVID or whatever, you infect on average, you know, X number of people. And so if if the R is greater than one, it's it's an exponential trend, right? You know, and like are like you could um this was like like Dropbox and like PayPal's early user acquisition thing was like you signed up and you got twenty dollars for free. And if you refer referred a friend, I think like you got twenty dollars and they got twenty dollars. And so like on average one person referred one and a half people. And so like if that just keeps compounding, it's gonna go to infinity. And eventually it's not gonna go to infinity because it's gonna hit some some asymptote. Um so I think that's sort of like the way I look like, you know, yeah, to take um, the, you know, the internet business example or the, the blockchain or, or crypto example, like you could just see, you know, I saw many times, you know, for myself, but then talking to other people, like people have been like, oh yeah, like that may, I, it, would, it would click and it was, it was infectious in some extent, right? It's like people would hear about it and um, start doing it. And, you know, it just, it sort of made sense. Um, and I think, you know, it's this idea of, um, like information asymmetry, just like what you know, you know, what you know that other people don't know or what your subculture knows that other people does, don't know where it's not like, uh, it's not like you've got some, you've done, you've analyzed it in some brilliant novel way. It's just like um, the world is a really big place and, you know, time and whatever is limited. And so not everyone knows everything all the time. Uh, and, you know, these things start small and, and then slowly to compound. So if you see something that has that sort of compounded growth rate, um, where it's spreading, you can kind of infer, you know, this is going to keep growing. I, I want to ask about that phenomenon because I find it so interesting where we, we, everyone lives in a different reality. We all are in our bubbles. And so things just feel so normal for us and sometimes can feel even overplayed. Right? I remember talking about Bitcoin like 2010, 2011, and like 2013 comes around and I'm like, everyone already knows it at this point and it hasn't gotten right. big. Okay, it's, it's over. And here we are like 2020 and we're still talking about, you know, when full adoption comes. And it's that when you're, when you're immersed in something 
it seems, seems very easy to take for granted. I, I'm curious, is there, does this bring something to mind for you where every, everyone around you is, is pursuing something where it just becomes normal and you sort of underestimate, hey, here, how big this, this, this niche thing could become? Yeah, I, I mean, one for me was definitely um, just like Amazon. Like I, I remember going to this conference, it would have been like 2014, 2015, Everyone's like, oh, you like Amazon is like they had um, they they had already had it, but they were like opening up their third party seller program where you could like sell stuff on Amazon, and uh, you know people were like, oh, you can go source these products in China and like put them on Amazon, and uh, like everyone I knew was doing this, and I was like, this is so play out, like I don't want you know who's going to do this? This should be dumb, and uh, you know it's, the growth has just been massive over the last five years. You know it's like up five thousand x or something insane, uh, not that many, a lot. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that's um, that's tricky. And like another one of those for me was like podcast. Like I was a podcast producer in 2012, and I remember thinking like, "Yeah, this is kind of like these are cool." Like, but like you know, everyone kind of already does some of this stuff, and like, how popular is this going to be? And uh, you know, the answer is like way more popular. Um, and, you know, now Joe Rogan has a gajillion listeners, and This American Life, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I think it's, you know, I don't know, I think it's, you have to um, have some sort of broader, I guess maybe what helped me at least with that is like, um, you, you have to get out of the bubble to some extent, right? You know, it's like when you're in the same bubble with the same people all the time, you just assume that that's, um, that's all there is with the Danny Kahneman has the, the Waziati, what you see is all there is, right? That's sort of the, the core of all the, the cognitive biases. You just assume that, you know, what's sort of most visible to you is, um, all of it's present out there. So, you know, like so I use um, that a lot of times I use like friends from college or friends from high school or, you know, like people that just had live, you know, we live in different worlds now kind of thing. They're just you know, different sort of subcultures that we interact with. And you're know, just kind of using them as like a rough proxy for like, what do people that are like not involved in this at all think about it? Right. And like, you know, with Bitcoin still, most of them it's like scam or I wonder if I can get rich really quick buying this kind of thing you know that's that's the general um thinking so yeah i i love that realizing that we already have secrets um you refer to them as an information asymmetry things that we just dismiss as normal because the bubble we find ourselves in they are normal and i said one of my favorite quotes is the william gibson the future is already here it's just not evenly distributed that in some sense we are already living in a subset of the future and seeing the things that we think are normal could those become normal for more people. It seems like a big part of your success is your ability to optimize for interestingness. If I remember correctly, your first URL was something like frontier living, right? It's like you're living, you're living on the frontier exploring all of these edges. Um, I, I would love to hear you talk about that. Is that that seems kind of key to, you know, the canary in the coal mine? You seeing seeing some of these things early on. How, how do you how do you manage to live on the frontier? Yeah, it's always, I always think of um, the Heart of Darkness, the Joseph Conrad novel. He has this part. It's like the first, the prologue, maybe, but it's this idea of like he wanted to go where like the map wasn't filled in. Right. And like Africa was this fascinating place because like, at, you know, at that time, the center of the continent was like just no one, you know, no one from the, you know, no Europeans at least 
knew it was, there just like was a sort of like blank map. Um, and yeah, I think that, and to some extent, just philosophically, that's like always been an interesting idea. So yeah, I think my first blog was called FrontierLiving.com. There's no G because that domain was taken. <laughs> I didn't want to pay for another domain. Um, so it wasn't the best URL choice. But um, yeah, I think to some extent, that was just always like a really interesting um, idea. And I think was just like, uh, I, th I think to some extent, like I've always kind of had the attitude of... Um, you know, even I go back to like sort of initial careers. Like I, uh, I was planning to go to law school. I was like studying for the LSAT and I was going to do this stuff. I was just like not interested in it. And I was like, if I do something else and I make like much less money and it's less prestigious, but it's like more interesting and fun. Like I'm like, that's cool with me. Like I'm, I'm like fine with that um, trade off. And I, you know, I think the, the paper I mentioned in this idea about times finishing is, Obviously, you know, I like the idea because, like, not only is this more fun, it's also, like, more profitable and, like, a better sort of way of approaching things. And, like, you know, it would be – hopefully that's true and it certainly would be nice if it was. Um, and I, I think it is. Um, so I think, yeah, that's part of that. And then, you know, I think yeah, another thing um, is this just idea of um, going back to the, the R-not analogy of something growing is, like, it's just – we're really bad. You know, humans are just really bad at uh, – exponential trends you know i think there's um what was one of there's a, a great story i think like um at&t or someone commissioned you know one of the big management consulting firms mckinsey or deloitte or someone to do a big study in like 1995 um maybe it was like 1980 i'll mess the dates up or something it's like how many people are going to have cell phones it probably would have been like 1980 and they were like you know, in, in 20, in 2020 or something, there will be like 10,000 cell phones, right? Cause for like, you know, right now there's 50 and whatever. And, um, they were off by like a hundred X. Like they were off by like this massive, massive factor. It's like the CEO of IBM said, Hey, there's maximum five computers, and right, there's exactly. gonna be five supercomputers and no other need for it. Right. Um, yeah. And I think that, like, that yeah, that's another good, uh, there's another good example. So I think like that's, you know, when I, you see something and it's, it seems to be growing quickly, uh, even if it's really small, um, you know, that's like a big advantage. Yeah, as you mentioned, like uh, Peter Thiel has his idea of like, what are the secrets, right? And like the secret of PayPal was like, at the time it was like, people wouldn't, the idea that people put their credit cards in the internet was like crazy. Like, I'm not gonna put my credit card on this freaking internet thing, this is insane. Um, but like, people were doing, you know, eBay was already a thing right there, right? It's like people were already like putting credit cards and like sending money and stuff on the internet. Like not many people, um, but a few people. And it was like growing really quickly, right? Like I think, and I even think there's a, I don't know if it's one of, you know, one of the TL or Bezos has some story where they just like looked at the growth rate, right? It was like, they looked at like internet users, like 93, 94, 95. Uh, and it was like, going up, you know, 10x every year. And it was like, oh, like you, if you extrapolate this out for like 10 more years, this is like, you know, this is the most impactful technology of generation. Um, da, da, da. But, you know, I think, you know, people don't tend to, we just don't tend to, to sort of work that out. And I think, yeah, you kind of have to like play the math out to some extent for it to make sense. Yeah, I think that's a really good transition to thinking about extrapolation. So recognizing something that, is still small in an absolute sense, but is growing very quickly. And being able to guess at a potential future, where it's going, 
Uh, I think, you know, this year being a great example of something that is ignored to the point that it no longer can't be ignored. And I'm curious, you know, why are we so bad at extrapolating exponentially? Why, why is that something that as a culture, um, as a society, we just, we have so much difficulty with? Yeah, I mean, the explanation that makes the most sense to me is kind of like the evolutionary biology, right? Like if you go back, um, you know, whatever you want to call modernity, the last 2000 years in like evolutionary history is like a very tiny blip, right? Like it's not, there's no meaningful, like humans aren't biologically meaningfully different than they were 2000 years ago, but obviously civilization is. Um, and you know, if you, yeah, you want to go back and you look at um, homo sapiens or homo sapiens, it's just like the environments they were living in were, um, you know, Nassim Club has this idea of mediocristan versus extremistan, that uh, sort of the, the evolutionary environment for humans was, was mediocristan, right? Like you never, um, you know, the herd of wildebeest didn't like 10x month over month, right? Like it just, that, it doesn't work that way. Um, you know, that sort of thing uh, kind, of, kind of never happened. Um, and it, there's just not in sort of like natural phenomena, you know, you don't see these sort of like extreme events, right? It tends to be civilizational things, human things, the, you know, the internet or, um, you know, um, if you had, and again, if you had like a infectious disease in 5,000 BC, right? Like it killed the tribe, killed the 50 people in the tribe that were right there. And then they were all dead. And like, that was the end of it. Like there were, you know, there was no, this is like hyper-connected sort of thing. Um, Never existed. So I, I think most of it's just like um, you know, the evolutionary biology is such that like we're just bad at it because we never really had to um, had to do it. And I think even you know it's interesting using sort of like COVID as an example. You know, most professions or most careers, most people still don't have to like do that in any capacity. I was talking with a friend of mine that's a doctor in New York, and uh, he was like he and it was, he'd previously been an options trader. He came out of finance and he went back to medical school. And, uh, you know, he was telling me basically he had had this like serious conversation with the, his procurement person in like January. It's like, I need you to order 20,000 N95 masks right now because they're all going to be out of stock in two weeks kind of thing. And he had had this big fight with the procurement guy. He was like, oh, this is stupid. Like, no, we're not going to look over more later. Did, uh, and, you know, he was saying there's all these countries he had similar with doctors where like, uh, his guess is it was like a math background. It's like if they never take people, doctors that had just done science and not done math, were like they all thought the COVID thing was kind of dumb. And then all the ones that had done math were like, oh, this is going to be a huge deal. But there's this huge bifurcation just based on like, does this person have sort of professional or um, some sort of meaningful experience of like playing with these numbers where they've developed some, you know, they, they know that their intuition is bad about it and they're, they're self-aware about that thing to, um, um, to know that. So I think it is like, it is trainable, right? Like it is, it is fixable. Um, you, you can sort of like develop an intuition around how that works. But I think the, you know, the natural bias is very bad, right? Like it's like, gonna, um, if you go out and you just swing a golf club and you've never swung a golf club before, like your swing sucks. Uh, because it's not, you know, it's not a natural movement. It doesn't feel natural. You have to like, you know, go through training. I think it's sort of the same thing. It reminds me a lot of a post you did about attracting luck and the implication being that everything that matters occurs in the fat tails, that there are low probability but high impact events. And so, um, you know, I think in a 
a sense this is this is the exposure to positive convexity where or another way of thinking it is option is optimizing for optionality where many times the outcome is if it's bad it's 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 not so bad right it's like a, a risk of a very small loss or no loss at all but the potential for very large upside um, how, how do you think about those implications for us maybe in, in career terms in if if all of the action is happening on the fat tails um, how do we position ourselves yeah I mean I think the so the idea of the fat tail is um, you know, there's there's sort of two kinds of uh, there's a uh, two kinds of distributions right there's there's they're called normal distributions and fat tail distributions as you said like the idea of fat tail distribution is uh, basically unexpected events are more expected than most people think um, and, you know there seems a lot of you know it calls these the black swans right you have these low impact but um, excuse me low probability of extremely high um, high impact events. Um, I mean, I think, you know, part of that, uh, the, the example I give in the, the post, I think you mentioned, you know, uh, one way of thinking about it is, um, I think people tend to focus too much on sort of like the, uh, the middle people. I, I give the example of like, um, you know, how Taylor Swift like prices concert tickets, right? So it's like most people, like, I don't know, if you ask me how much I'd be willing to pay to go to a Taylor Swift concert. It's like, I like Taylor Swift, but I don't like, I'm not super into it. I don't know, I'd pay 50 bucks or something, right? But there's like some group of people that are like, would pay $10,000 or 20 for the super premium. I wanna, I wanna meet Taylor before the show. I wanna get in a box. I wanna like have a recording. I want, you know, I wanna do sort of all this stuff. Um, and the um, sort of the interesting math here, for me at least, is, um, you have this idea of like the 80-20 principle, which I think most people are familiar with it. You know, 80% of your results is a result of 20% of your actions. Um, and Perry Marshall has a great book called 80-20 Sales and Marketing. And actually the appendix is the best chapter of the book. Um, and he goes into this idea that the 80-20 principle is, um, is fractal or self-similar at different scales. You have the 80-20, but then you also have the 80-20 of the 80-20, which is the 464. So you have 4% of your actions that are responsible for 64%. Um, and then you have the, the, the 80, 20 of the 464, which is it's like uh, 1.2 or 0.8 and 52, but roughly it's like 1% uh, is responsible for 50%. Um, and like, that's frequently true. If you look at like uh, a business, like usually often 1% of their customer base will be responsible for 50% of the revenue, right? Like that's probably true in like um, different, like yeah, Taylor Swift could like price for concert tickets kind of following this, this power law. Um, distribution. So I think one way, if like in general, for um, for business owners or um, freelance type people, is to to think about like how can you sort of better serve that that one percent, right? Like I think people spend too much time. They, and this is like a common thing. Like, um, right, salespeople will spend all this time prospecting for new clients and like very little time like doing account management and like interacting with their existing clients. Um, when like almost always it's like much more profitable um, to just like do, being doing relationship stuff and like, like someone's already bought, if you're a car salesman, someone's already bought a car from you, it's like much more likely to buy a car from you again then you gotta go find some random person that you have no relationship with, no rapport, um, and sort of, um, sort of build that up from scratch. And then I think, you know, the other thing is just like, you know, try to think about, I think it's personal to everyone, like what are those sort of like 1% 
um, activities that lead to, you know, 50% results. Like if you look back over the last five years of your life, can you like point to specific things like this, you know, this was a relatively low effort thing that had very high impact results. You know, um, you know, blogging for me was one of those things early. You know, uh, I started doing that in like 2011, 2012. And uh, it was like, you know, two hours a week, but it was like, I'd like meet interesting people. Like it was just like relative, I was like, oh, I should like keep doing this thing. It's relatively little effort and, um, you know, it's uh, relatively high, um, relatively high upside. And so I think just trying to, you know, usually my process for that has always been, I try to do like a, quarterly or annual thing where I like look back and try and look at like, okay, over the last 90 days, the last year, like what are the few activities um, that had like disproportionately important results? And then how can I, you know, how can I double down on that um, in some capacity? I, I love that. It's, it's such an interesting framing to realize, hey, 1% of the things that I'm doing are driving 50% of the returns. And so there's two part question there. What are the few things that are doing that are having the greatest impact? And then that double down decision, which is I'm going to stop doing some of these other things which are not valuable, stop treating everything I'm doing as equal and find ways to fractally dig deeper into the things that are driving the most return. Um, it's that I love the, the way of thinking about the way we invest in terms of a power law. And I think the biggest investments we make are always where we spend our time. And so if we think about time as a power law, the most important thing that we could be doing is more important than everything else we could be doing combined. And so that leads to things like reflecting and planning become very, very high leverage activities because they help to reveal that most important thing, but also that a lot of the things that we're doing that we backwards rationalize has high impact really are negative impact because they get in the way of doing this 1% of things that really matter. Totally. Taylor, I, I love this, this, um, this sharing of blogging as something that has low effort, high upside. Um, I, I would love to know, you know, what other types of optionality are you currently exploring? Is it, what's what's on? I think you'd mention, hey, when you when you see something that you think might be a trend, your your approach is just to, you know, only the autodidacts are free, just to become completely immersed in that. What what types of optionality are you immersing yourself in right now? So like I said one other big one. Just I, I think I. I'm trying to do this to a better job now. Um, and I feel like I've been trying to sort of like double down on this in some capacity for 10 years. And I still feel like I could sort of invest more. It's just, um, you know, different sort of investing in relationships in different ways, whether that's like hosting events and, you know, both on like a social and a professional level. Um, you know, yeah. So on a social level, just like have, you know, having really good friends like makes, you know, at that point, you're kind of winning, right? Like there's not, it's, there's a lot, not a lot of margin to improve at that point. And then I think also like on a professional level, and I, at least my, my uh, inbuilt tendency is just kind of like stick my go head down and uh, just work on stuff and like not pull up and um, interact as much. And I noticed, you know, like some of the most effective people I know, like write really long emails, right? Like I'll ask them like, hey, what do you think about this thing? And they'll send me this like really robust five paragraph 
thing where they've like thought through it. I'm like, God, oh, they're great at that. You know what I mean? It's like, I know, like I know Chris is really good at, uh, planning stuff or whatever because I've seen like okay, you've I've, you know read your blog post or I've seen you know you sent me like we've talked about it in so long you know like I, I can sort of evaluate that expertise so I think that's um, sort of uh, establishing relationships has been like another um, sort of big one um, you know I guess right now I'm really interested um, the sort of yeah Bitcoin blockchain crypto space or public blockchain space in general is uh, is like still very interesting to me. And uh, most people I talk to still think it's dumb, which makes me think there's there's a lot of room left to uh, have something play out there over the next uh, 20 years. I think that's a long-term thing. Um, you know, as you mentioned, I'm, um, I, I run a hedge fund now that focuses on tail risk and like volatility strategies. That's sort of an aspect of the investing world is really interesting to me right now. Um, and I'm trying to, to do more with and, um, and learn more about um i think those are um those are maybe the big ones for me at this moment if i can identify a commonality there i I think this investment metaphor really hits home is these are these are long-term investments and it's not clear which part of the portfolio is going to pay off Uh, i remember the story um you were telling about marketing your book where you, you suspected that 50% 50% of your book sales came back to two emails that you had sent out. And we were talking about relationships and how, you know, relationships are very much a long-term investment and in that, you know, many of our opportunities or, you know, amazing experiences can be traced back to a couple of initial interactions. And the things that no one is asking for from us generally become the most important that they're they're very self-guided kind of long-term actions and it it strikes me if the commonality there it goes back to your superpower of being able to invest and go deep and being willing to have a long time horizon that these these investments play off in kind of unexpected ways and you can be in that niche for a long time before it becomes normal right? It's the, hey, the overnight success that was really 10, 10 years of gym time ahead of time. Um, I'm curious about that. It's like, we, we, we live in a world that rewards short-term results. You know, everything gets reduced down to 280 characters. Um, you know, what have you done for me lately? What's the sales numbers at? How, how do you think about prioritizing these long-term timescales? So like you said, in terms of exponential growth, you need to be, you need to have a long time scale in order for things to go vertical. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a really interesting idea. One of the sort of parts of the Bitcoin subculture is uh, Austrian economics, which is like one of the sort of the, I guess, least academically accepted or sort of least academically popular schools of um, sort of economic thoughts, uh, but it has some really interesting ideas. And one of them is this idea of um, what they call time preference. So like, um, you know, you, they do these experiments with people, but like if you have a savings account that earns 5% a year, you know, the question is, would you rather have $100 now or $105 a year from now? Um, and so I think, uh, you know, I, I think it's generally, I think most people have too high of time preference, right? Like they want to have the thing sooner um, and when you're 
I guess when you're dealing with something that compounds, um, you know, that that future potential is so vast compared to sort of what is um, presently available. Like I'm sure you know, there's a, a slightly butcher the, the numbers, but it's like if you started um, filling up the uh, Yankee Stadium with water, you know, you start with one drop and then the next minute you do two drops and then you do four drops of water. Maybe you search with like a payout, the doubling. Um, but the, the end of it is basically at like 50 minutes, basically, you're just where like the whole uh, infield is damp. You know, it just looks like someone like sprinklered the infield. And uh, at 60 minutes, the stadium is like overflowing with water. Um, and so you have that, you know, that, that back end of that exponential curve is just so steep. Um, and so I think that's, um, you know, once I kind of started to understand that idea in some way, you know, that just seemed like such a big opportunity, right? Um, the, the grain of rice that doubles every day and eventually the king has to give the whole kingdom to the person <laughs> after 30 days kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like that's another good example of that. Um, but, you know, I, yeah, I think that's right. Like it's like I think in a lot of, I try to approach things, like a lot of, you know, Bitcoin or crypto is a good example. It's like how, you know, a lot of people approach like how can this make a ton of money in like the next six months? And like, wouldn't that be awesome? And like, yeah, it would be awesome. Um, but you know, the, the potential future rewards, right. The compound growth rate of that, um, uh, is very, very high. And I think that, you know, like, um, you know, the game theory idea of like the iterated, um, prisoner's dilemma that when like, when you're cooperating with other people, right, you're enhancing, uh, you know, the future, um, wealth, however you want to calculate wealth in those terms of both individuals and that compounds over time. Yeah, thanks. It's it's so hard to overestimate compounding and said it's all it's all a function of time. So I'm I I love thinking about hey, what are the things that are interesting enough for you that you're willing to spend a lot of your time on it with no promise of return? Because sometimes it might not go anywhere. But if you you need needing to stick with something for long enough to see things play out, yeah, I think that's always um, that, that's always one of the, my heuristics. I have like a project heuristic list. Like, should I take on this project? And one of them is like, could I see myself spending at least five years on this? Um, and I think it's very you know, it's like every all the the poor decisions I've made. They're always been like, oh, this is like a great opportunity. I'll just like do this for six months, even though it's like not the thing I'm that excited about. And then I'll like go do the other thing that I'm like actually excited about. And uh, that's never worked, at least for me, you know, that's never worked. It's advice I give a lot. Um, You know, it's when I talk about the difference between productivity and performance is that uh, productivity is moving as fast as you can along the path and performance is just taking the most direct path, the closest to the straight line. And we, we put these brick walls between ourselves and the things that we want. We are, it was like, okay, I'm going to uh, go work for McKinsey for two years and then I'm going to go to the MBA and I'm going to do the investment banking. And then I can finally do the thing that I really want to do rather than finding a way to just go at it directly that all of these prerequisites are really just ways of delaying. Um, I want to, want to uh, make sure we have enough time for, for Q and a today. So if any of you guys have questions you'd like to ask Taylor, um, be sure to uh, add those into the Q&A and upvote any questions that you find interesting. 
Um, one last one last question for you, Taylor, before we uh, switch it over to Q and A. Um, what what recommendation would you have to someone who wants to create more upside in their career? Some of these, you know, low effort but potentially high impact things that we could be doing. Um, what, what comes to mind? Um, I think you know, I think optimized finishing, which is one of the ideas we've sort of been bringing back enough. Like, I think that's um, that's a big one. Um, I think that, and I think you know, I think sort of a corollary to that, or sort of adjacent to that, is this idea of like. Um, you know, you have to be willing to work on small things or things that seem relatively trivial, right? Like if um, once 50% of people are doing it, it can only double, right? Like that's it. That's the maximum sort of thing. But if, you know, um, one one hundred thousandth of 1% of people are like into it, then like, you know, the potential growth rate from there um, is very, very high. So I think part of it's, yeah, that I find interesting and then also sort of like what is... Um, you know what? What is some as you you know uh, said the, the Tealian secret idea? You know what is something that mm -hmm. that you or your subculture sort of think about that that doesn't seem um, broadly applicable? And then you know I think you know beyond that, the other things that have been impactful for me is um, you know taking time to try and like not just get interested in those things and learn about those things, but like share that in some capacity. You know whether that's you know blogging and Twitter has been most of the ways I've done that, um, but you know. YouTube podcast hosting events. There's a jillion ways to sort of like share that, um, that kind of stuff. So I think that that balance between sort of sharing what you're learning and then trying to learn new interesting things, and you can create sort of a, a very positive feedback loop. Awesome, thanks, Taylor. Um, first question is from Sunil. Uh, Taylor, in these crazy times, how does one live with uncertainty? Um, what are your go-to mental models, which are value? and dealing with uncertainty? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I guess, if from a mental model perspective, I, I really like the OODA loop um, framework and just sort of like John Boyd's work in general, who's the guy that came up with the, um, the OODA loop idea, but OODA is, uh, it stands for, it's an acronym for uh, Observe, Orient, Decide, uh, Act. And the idea is that, you know, this is a, um, this is a process which everyone does um, intuitively, right? You know, it's like, I observe that I am hungry, I orient by going to Yelp, I decide that I want to eat Chick-fil-A, I get in my car and drive to Chick-fil-A um, or whatever. And then, you know, we're all, you know, you're also making this on um, at, at many different levels at many different times, right? I, I observe that I don't like my job, I orient by like, you know, trying to you know, talk to people in my network of like other jobs that could be more interesting or fulfilling or whatever. And, you know, I decide to change. and. Um, and I act on that change. So I think that's like one sort of way that's helpful for me um, of thinking about it. Um, you know, I, I guess just like sort of more practice trying to, you know, practically for me, like when I get in, that's just everything feels like super uncertain and out of control. Um, a lot of times I just need like a break. I just need to like take three days off and like, go to the lake or like just go, you know, play video games or something and just kind of like let everything simmer. Um, Cause I think a lot of times it's just, you know, for me and I think a lot of people like you just lose the, um, the forest for the trees kind of thing, right? Like you're just, everything feels super uncertain. It's like actually not that uncertain. You're just like really lost in the weeds of it. Um, mm. And as you can take a step back, um, 
you get a lot of space, you know, and I sort of, one thing that's always helpful for me, I try to do once a quarter, I'll take like a day or two and do kind of just like a, you know, not respond to email, not doing a bunch of messages, but just do sort of like a big picture kind of review and just think about things and try and um, uh, sort of reorient myself, if you will, in the, the OODA loop um, example. And uh, I, I almost invariably find it like after, you know, after I take like two or three days and just sort of like chill out, do some thinking, do some planning that like the, the amount of the, a lot of the uncertainty was perceived uncertainty and not sort of actual underlying uncertainty. Yeah, for those of you guys who know me, know how much I love uh, meditation metaphors. And one of my favorites, uh, the teacher is saying, hey, make sure you sit down 30 minutes every day, no matter what is going on. And if you don't have 30 minutes, do it for two hours, which is just another way of saying the less, <laughs> the less sure you are of what you're doing or the more busy and frantic things feel, the more important it is to get away and to reorient yourself. Um, and this is something that's always counterintuitive. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a surprisingly difficult assignment that I often give my clients who have many things flying at them and are just too busy to think or plan is to just take a day off and don't touch their computer or phone. And it's really surprising how powerful it can be to restore that, that sense of perspective. Um, it, also, it also reminds me, I mean, I, I love the OODA loop so much, uh, and you know, we've, we've nerded out about it quite a bit. And so when I talk about, in a poker sense, how I am trying to get inside of my opponent's loop, that they are acting on an outdated model of the world, that I can anticipate their response, the decision and action that they make based off of a shared mental model. And thus I can have their obser observations in, out of concordance with reality. And that this was, this was one of John Boyd's key observations when he was looking at fighter pilots and which fighter pilot would win in a dogfight. It was the fighter pilot who was able to reorient uh, both more accurately to what was happening, but also faster and that the tightness of this feedback loop that we find ourselves in is proportional to our speed for progress. So I can't help but ask a follow-up is, you know, what strategies do you have to reorient to reality faster? Yeah, I have one John Boyd story that I thought would be interesting as you were thinking. He was also a big proponent of, um, there was like a, the big trend in the U.S. military was just these like bigger, weightier planes like you see like top gun and like f-14s and stuff there's maybe there's a scene in top gun uh where it's talking about like why top gun was started but basically the the soviet migs which are like much smaller much cheaper much quote-unquote worse um planes than the f-14s were um i think like the the you know they calculate the ratio of like who's shooting down who and all that kind of stuff but the the migs were just like much more effective um and so like, you know, there, everyone was sort of, um, upset, but like the, the key thing, they were just more maneuverable, right? So even though they had less firepower and less missiles and weaker engines and everything else, they were just smaller and more maneuverable. Um, 
and I, Boyd was really influential. He was one of the big people. I think it's called the Warthog airplane, but it's like, it looks, it's just the ugliest looking plane you've ever seen in your life. It's got like two big turbines. I think it's like mostly the Marines use them, um, but it's like really effective. Um, and so I, yeah, I think that there's like an analogy there to like these things that look kind of like uh, dumb or silly or um, ugly or whatever, like, you know, are often, um, often really effective um, you sort of to go to your question of like, you know, what are the sort of things that I do um, to orient? I mean, I think the biggest thing for me is I have, I have a pretty like a regular just kind of weekly and quarterly review process. Like I, I tend to try to schedule in times deliberately um, for what I'm going to do that kind of stuff. So I usually every Saturday morning I'll take like two hours and just like look through my calendar for the past week, look through my task list for the past week and kind of do a chance like what, like what, what went like unexpectedly well, right? Like this call that I thought was going to be a waste of time was actually like super interesting. And I learned a ton from this person and, you know, I hope that it's like, is like, where did I meet them? Is there like any way could I, should I maybe I should take another call with them or, or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, I think just having those like built in, uh, stops or just built in barriers or uh, breaks or whatever you want to call them. Um, I think is probably the most helpful thing for me. Yeah, it's, it's really critical to close the loop. And it's something that I see a lot of resistance from, especially those who consider themselves creatives. Um, so this could, be, this could be writing, this could be design, any type of, of pursuit where you see your role to go from zero to one to create things that didn't exist. But looking at many of the most creative people throughout history, you know, those who came up with scientific theorems or you know, wrote the, the post that became the concept that we all reference, um, they were incredibly systematic about their creativity, that having this structure to regularly review what they, what they were doing was leading to the results that they wanted, um, those are the ones who went on to have the greatest impact that creativity, having interesting and new ideas um, is, is not only not counter to having this, this structure, but I, in my opinion that the structure becomes essential for the creativity that happens in the space in between. For sure, yeah, personally true for me. Uh, question from uh, Jason. So we have a specific example of the secular trend of psychedelics that's happening right now. So we see, you know, mental health really coming to the forefront. Uh, we've seen this recently with, you know, meditation and yoga having a resurgence. Um, and it seems like that the cultural opinion of things as potential, not only not harmful, but potentially very beneficial. Um, there's been studies recently in psychedelics as far as being useful for addiction and, and depression um, when conducted in correct set and setting, you know, clinical settings. Um, Jason's curious, you know, what's, what's, your, what's your opinion on some of the consequences that you predict from this current societal change? Uh, yeah, I... I don't know a lot about psychedelics, you know, whatever I've read the same three blog posts everyone else read um, about them kind of thing is my level of knowledge. Um, but yeah, it, it, it seems like an interesting, you know, going back, we're talking about, you know, 
thinking about what's trends to bet on or whatever, like everyone that's into it is like really into it, right? It's like, you know what I mean? Like no one's like meh about it for the most part. Like, you know, it's everyone's like, oh yeah, this is like, you gotta do this. It's gonna change your life forever. Um, kind of things so, like, that makes me think it's like probably a good trend to bet on. Like the legalization thing seems to be moving along. I, I'm not like paying close attention to that, but I know they're like going, you know, stage three or stage four, the trial level is increasing and um, all that kind of stuff. And it does seem to have that characteristic of like everyone that's into it is like real, you know what I mean? The, the R not is like greater than one, right? Like everyone that does it like convinces at least two other people to do it. Um, and so like you just keep playing out that growth rate and like it ends up being big. Yeah, virality is everything. And it's it's the difference between you know, mercenaries and missionaries is you're looking at those who are into it. Are they really into it? Is it is it the thing that they talk to everyone about? It's like how long are you in a conversation with them before it comes up? Uh, these are these are pretty uh, good proxies to look out for. And uh, I, I'm curious. Uh, it's it seems like it seems like Bitcoin falls into that camp. Um, you know. You mentioned we've been talking about paleo a little bit where it's like, how long are you talking to this person before they bring up that they're doing paleo right now? Are there any other examples that you can think of where it's almost it's almost cult like in the fanaticism where that that speed to someone bringing something up in conversation seems to be that biggest factor for word of mouth virality. Yeah, that's actually way of thinking. I'd say what's the, there's some line about like the difference between a cult and religion is like adoption percentage. Right? <laughs> like you, you cross some threshold and now it's not a cult, it's a religion. Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. What are people, what else are people really into? Um, I don't know, the AI people seem to be kind of like, the people that are into AI are like really into it um, kind of stuff. Um, that's another, yeah, I think like Bitcoin is certainly like that where like, you know, it, it uh, borders and goes into religion, I think for a lot of people. Um, you know, psychedelics um, is a good one. Um, what else do people really, um, I think like, uh, yeah, like other health, um, this seems to be like, like the vegetable oil crusade seems to be like picking up yeah. steam. That's, I know a lot of people are like, just like militant about you can't have vegetable oil kind of thing. Um, and some of those people are like, oh, why can't I go to Kroger and buy sweet potato fries, not vegetable oil? And I was like, oh man. That's a business, right? There. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't know how the economics of business work or whatever, but like, yeah, like in 10 years, like that's going to be a big, uh, that's going to be a huge thing. Like people, that's going to, consumer preferences seem to be changing there. Um, what else? I don't know. It's a, yeah, it's a good question. If I had other, um, I guess the, uh, the city state people to like start your, you know, like the, um, uh, seasteading and that whole movement like those people are like really passionate about it um and like you know yeah like very sort of like evangelical i think that's like another interesting um trend and uh yeah i don't know i guess that's the they call them secrets because they're hard to think of you know it's like, yeah. <laughs> if i knew a lot of them they wouldn't be very secret you know almost by definition 
Yeah, a question for from uh, Jason. So I think this is a good continuation of the theme around living with uncertainty. So there's there's one approach to uncertainty, which is trying to reduce the uncertainty. Can we can we identify what the crux of it is and find some way of measuring and tracking it so that we can better predict? Um, but it seems like an unexplored angle from today is the anti-fragile notion, a admitting, hey, the world is at least somewhat undeterministic and uncertainty is inevitable and some aspects of the future are unknowable. And I think one of your key insights that led to the creation of Mutiny Fund is that most of us are, as you put it, short volatility where um, you know, Taleb gives the, um, the image of a glass jar sitting on the edge of the table where anything occurring is bad for the glass jar, that many, many of our systems are set up so that any change is, is bad for us and thus become very resistant to change. And this notion that we can become long volatility, that change, and especially, um, you know, large, unpredictable change can actually benefit us. Um, but we'd love to hear how you, you think about that and how it, you know, led to your, your thinking on creating the fund. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I, think that's right. I think part of one of the interesting ideas that, that Taleb has in general, and particularly as it applies to markets, is that... Um, if you have something which is, you know, I guess at least in market specific, I'm trying to think of this is more general, but um, if you, if you reduce, um, you reduce the short-term volatility, you increase the long-term volatility. So like what we would expect if that's happening is you'd expect uh, sort of black swan or, you know, these sort of high volume to be less frequent, but more severe. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in particular, like there's a, um, you know, there's, there's a non-linearity to the severity, right? A, uh, you know, losing 40%, you know, losing 80% of your portfolio is more than twice as bad as losing 40%. Um, and, you know, losing 90% is, you know, more than 10% worse than losing 80%, right? It's, um, there's a, a non-linearity um, to how that all plays out. And, you know, in the case of investing specifically, that, you know, that has a huge impact on the ability to compound wealth. Um, over time, right? If you have um, if you have a fifty percent drawdown in your portfolio, you have to make hundred percent just to get back to to where you started. And so, if you're able to to reduce those sorts of drawdowns, your your long term compounded growth rate is much higher. You know, guess getting back to what we're talking about about you know that that back end of the exponential curve being very mm -hmm. steep and how that sort of um, underestimated. So yeah, I think that, you know, that was, that was sort of the impetus that, um, you know, got me, uh, interesting. I think you know, that that's another area that's a very niche area, but you know, the people that are like into that sort of long volatility investment stuff are, are really into it. Um, and you know, most people aren't. Um, and so to me, that seems like it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting bet to take in that, in that regard. Well, especially because in investing, you need to be both right and contrarian. If if everyone was into it, it probably wouldn't be as good of a trade. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, crazy good trade it out, right? Everyone does the, 
you do the good trade and um, you know it works and then the consultants get a hold of it and the consultants go to the pension funds and pitch the pension funds on it and the pension funds do it and like then it stops working and you know that's yeah that, that's the cycle right well, Taylor, awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Um, and guys, really appreciate the, the great questions, um, all the, uh, the fun uh, chatter. Um, hopefully you came today, came away from today with a little bit better of understanding on how you can recognize how some of your normals might become future normals for larger groups of people, maybe ways that you can become more anti-fragile or create more optionality in your life and career. Um, Taylor, any, any final thoughts to, uh, to leave the audience with today? No, thank you for having me. This was fun. <laughs> Succinct and direct. I love it. Uh, so quick reminder, guys, uh, this is going to be, um, well, this was recorded and this is going to be sent out in an email on Tuesday and posted on the forcing function website with the full transcript and show notes, everything that was mentioned or discussed today, if you want to go find that. Um, with that, um, thank you guys so much for being here and we'll see you guys again on the 15th. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Forcing Function Hour. At Forcing Function, we teach performance architecture. We work with a select group of 12 executives and investors to teach them how to multiply their output perform at their peak, and design a life of freedom and purpose. Make sure to subscribe to Forcing Function Hour for more great episodes, or go to forcingfunctionhour.com to sign up for our newsletter so you can join us live. Music